This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I suck you up and I spit you out and I play with your babies till you scream and shout, oh yeah, oh yeah, till you scream and shout, oh yeah, oh yeah, till you Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's definitely the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State University, and it is my pleasure to steer the ship today. Joining me on board are three of my lovely co-hosts, Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, Shireen Ahmed, Freelance Journalist and Newly Launched Consultant in Toronto, Canada, and Lindsay Gibbs, Sports Writer for Think Progress in Washington, D.C. Hey, y'all. Good morning. So we have a packed show for you today. First, we're going to talk about things you might have missed over the last week and a half in the sports world. With Kaepernick and Nike, Serena and Naomi dominating the headlines and become national news stories, there was a lot of things that may have flown under the radar. So we want to get together and talk about things that you might have missed and you might want to know that happened over the last week, or even new angles on things that were talked about a lot. Then we're going to pivot a little bit, and we're going to talk about the sad state of affairs of women's soccer in North America, bringing you stories from Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica, right here in the United States with Sky Blue. We want to dig through what's going on, what are some of the challenges these federations are facing, and what can we do to continue to support and elevate the women's game. Continuing with that theme, we're going to bring you not one, but two interviews. I'm going to sit down and talk with Lauren Silver, who plays for the Reggae Girls Jamaican Women's National Team. I'm also going to talk to Lauren Hutchinson, that's Lauren with a Y, and she plays for the Soka Warriors, the Trinidad and Tobago Women's National Team. And together with both Laurens, I want to get a little bit more information about what's going on with their federations and give them a platform to air some of their concerns. I want to take a minute to talk about Naomi Osaka and the fun things she's doing since she won the U.S. Open. She's hanging out with LeBron James and Channing Tatum. (laughs) (laughs) I assume that's what you're talking about. (laughs) Yes, that would be one of the things. (laughs) Yeah, she's living her best life right now, and I love it. And she's making, I know this isn't the point, but she's making so much money. (laughs) Yes. Because I don't know if you've heard, Japan, very rich market. <laughs> yeah, she just signed a deal for uh, Nissan. Yep. And she did the talk show rounds. She was on Ellen. She was on the Today Show. Ellen asked her who her crush was. And she said Michael P. Jordan. And Ellen proceeded to send him a selfie that absolutely mortified her. But then Michael B. Jordan uh, sent her a video message back about how proud he was of her and how much he enjoyed watching her play. So it's it's super fun to see a smile return to her face as she's doing this post-open circuit. 
also a, a really fun video that was circulating after her win was of her and her sister playing a game with chopsticks and black beans. And it was when she was little and it's absolutely adorable and the dexterity required for that. And it's actually, I was reading a little bit about it and it's a very common game that is used for attention, for focus and for manual dexterity that parents use and, and Japanese parents also often use with their kids. And she was so efficient and like fluid in her movement. It was incredible. It was really fun to watch. Yeah, it was really cool. And you could see her competitive nature because she beat her sister and then she played her dad. And so you take the chopsticks and you have to put 10 of them out of the little bowl and then back in. And with her sister, she was winning the whole time. But with her dad, it was kind of neck and neck and very close. And you can see her right at the end, pull ahead and win. And she like jumps out and she's like, I win. You hear her mom saying, Naomi's the winner. And she just has this big smile. And so you can see her kind of competitive fuel behind this kind of soft-spoken exterior. So I, I, Shireen, I'm with you. I really enjoyed that video. Yeah, it was beautiful. I was saying she's lovely. That family is lovely. So, so, so nice. All right, so let's get started. You may have heard that there was some controversy at the U.S. Open. You may have that Nike made Kaepernick a new spokesperson. There was many things in the sports world that became kind of national news stories over the last, I'd say, week and a half or so. And one of the things that happens there is the hot takes come fast and flaming, and sometimes the conversations gets redundant or goes in circles. So one of the things we wanted to do today is talk about things you may have missed as these other stories kind of took center stage. So what we're going to do now is bring up different things that we noticed that we were kind of paying attention to and we kind of want to highlight throughout the last week in sports. And it may be new angles on things we thought we knew or something that flew under the radar altogether. So to kick us off, Shireen, what do you have? What what did we miss last week? Well, first of all, Amira, thank you for this, because I think this is really important. Sometimes stories that are relevant and necessary just kind of get, they don't get the attention they need. So my specific contribution to this segment will be, it's almost a pseudo burn, but it's actually highlighting the fact that the National Hockey League does not have a domestic violence policy. And I say this because a couple of weeks ago, I actually burned this. In June, we found out that Austin Watson was actually arrested and was being investigated over domestic assault. And, you know, we, I didn't really hear about this because I was, you know, head in the sand during World Cup. But then I found out about it later. And in August, we talked about it on the show a little bit. It was a burn. But what ended up happening was he's been suspended 27 games over his situation. And Gary Bettman had come out and said that, you know, we found him to be, even though Watson in June had pleaded no contest, he was sentenced to one-year probation and had to do what's called the 26-week, quote-unquote, bachelor intervention course. I don't even want to know what that is. It, like, just the wording of it is so horrific. And anyways, it was his uh, ex-girlfriend. So well, the uh, victim, the survivor, actually is the mother of his child and she wanted it to be dismissed but what had happened was 
Gary Bittman said that he has determined that Nashville player Austin Watson engaged in physical confrontation. And the individual, and while tailored to specific facts, the individual involved, it's necessary and consistent with NHL's strongly held view that it cannot intolerate this type of conduct. Now, the problem is the NHL, quote unquote, strongly held view. So what we end up seeing is that this strongly held view is not tantamount to actually having a policy in place. And it's reprehensible that the NHL does not actually have a policy at all. And I've, I've, I mean, it's not like the NHL is new to this kind of thing. One of the most horrific cases, uh, you know, in sports history, in my opinion, is in the NHL. So I just really, really want to emphasize that this is something we should be paying attention to. This is something, if we're hockey fans, if we're any sports fans, we should be contacting the NHL completely appalled. Just send them a tweet, send them an email. My friend Saskia Stewart actually tweeted this out. She's like, I can't believe they don't have a policy. So we need to be aware of this. It's not okay. How do you think their non-policy compares to some of the other policies or non-policies across professional sports? Do do we see other professional sports teams with either a lack of policy or retroactively making one? Like, how do you think hockey is comparing? Well, I mean, hockey is, and, and we know because of, you know, the Patrick Kane case, there was no, nothing to do that. So the Blackhawks ran their own gong show and just absolved him of anything. Had the organization actually had a policy to do their own investigation or whatnot, you know, and actually have the players commit to that under contract, it would be a lot different. Right now, I sort of feel like they're absolved of anything. They're just, they're immune to any type of uh, penalty. And I think it's horrific. I'm not saying that the NFL's policy is fantastic, because don't even get me started on Goodell. But the thing is, is that there is one in place. There's something to abide by right now. If Bettman decides he wants to let it go or let it stay, there's no nothing to keep him within the lines. And the thing is, this is, I, I find it really problematic when one CEO or one commissioner has all the power. This is not the way it is supposed to be. It's supposed to be you follow those guidelines for the protection of society. Sport is a part of society. And if these players commit egregious violent acts, they have to abide by that for the safety of everybody involved. And it's not there. So I just, I'm fed up with it. I'm totally unsurprised, but I don't want the NHL and hockey players to go unchecked and pun intended. So that is something that definitely might've missed last week, but we really need to be paying attention to. Thanks, Shireen. Brenda, what do you think we missed last week? Well, I'm not sure everyone missed it. And certainly Lindsay wrote a lot about this and she didn't miss it, but the Seattle Storm beat the Phoenix Mercury last week to win the WNBA title. And the issue came up of whether they would visit the White House or not. And so maybe some people missed it. But what was fascinating to me is that the all around awesome Sue Bird basically was like, well, this isn't really a big issue with us. We're we're just sure we, we don't want to go. <laughs> basically. So it was like, pretty awesome. I mean, the the storm had 
uh, visited the White House in 2011. So it's not clear that they just wouldn't be invited nor go. And it was just wonderful the way that all the teammates kind of came out about the decision and discussed it and were very supportive of each other. And so we might have missed that a bit. And we might have just missed a chance to ruminate a bit on how freaking awesome is Sue Bird in general, because Brianna Stewart had this amazing just lights out performance. But Sue Bird, who calls herself the mother hen of that group, had a beautiful piece in the Players' Tribune called So I Broke My Fucking Nose. And if you haven't read it because you missed it because there was a lot going on, I think it's it's worth just taking some time to to read through it. And uh, yeah, so I don't know. That's what I've been kind of paying attention to when I'm not doing Serena and Nike Kaepernick. Yeah, that's definitely something that um, I saw a little bit on the radar. But I think back to the conversation around White House visits, say, you know, when the Warriors were in conversation about going or not going. And I think that one of the things that Sue said and pointed to is like, I don't even expect to invite because this administration has a long history of ignoring women champions altogether. Yeah. And she said, we've been watching what went on with Steph Curry. Of course, like we're all tuned into this. So it's not an isolated decision. So it was nice to see her recognize the fact that they are paying attention and they're really involved in this. Yeah, exactly. So the thing that I want to do is not something you may have missed, but a new angle on something that was talked about a lot. So, of course, Colin Kaepernick's the face of this new campaign and the commercial drew much conversation, (laughs) a lot of conversation around this commercial. But one thing that I wanted to talk about within that is the way that that commercial represents athletes with disabilities. And I was thinking about this and revisiting the conversation we had on the podcast around the pair games with my friend and colleague here at Penn State, Dr. Jonna Belanger. And one of the things that I returned to is how she kept saying, we're fighting with the Paralympics to say, these are athletes. They're athletes first and foremost, and they're athletes with varying abilities and different abilities, but they want to fight to be understood just on the terms of being athletes alone. And so one of the things that I really appreciated, despite my criticism and you know others' critique of this kind of corporate sponsorship of protests and athletic activism one of the things that was present in that ad in the in the full length ad was multiple images of athletes with disabilities and it wasn't framed as this kind of like fodder for a sob story but rather an aspirational thing and one of the athletes they featured was Shaquem Griffith who if you remember joined his brother in Seattle this season in the NFL and he has one hand and he has been playing and I've been, you know, keeping an eye on him. He plays outside uh, linebacker. And so to see him in the commercial and then to also, as the NFL season starts, see him kind of in action is just representation matters. And I thought that was something that was under talked about in this commercial that didn't go unnoticed for many who advocate for disability awareness and rights. And I wanted to just kind of center that for a second and say how welcome it was to have those representations in that way. Kind of along those lines, the other thing that happened this week was that the Baltimore Orioles became the first MLB team 
to incorporate braille lettering on their game day uniforms. And so they're hosting a National Federation of the Blind at Camden Yards for this big night. And one of the things they decided to do is the game day uniforms they'll wear on September 18th are going to have their team name spelled out in braille. The first, I think, 100 or 200 people coming into Camden Yards that day will receive a braille alphabet card. This week, they'll become they'll make history when they wear these uniforms. And I think that that was something that is really interesting to think about how teams are positioning themselves to be inclusive in multiple ways. I love that. I had not heard that. I definitely had missed that. <laughs> Lindsay, what did we miss this week? Well, you might have missed that Tad Fujikawa became the first professional male professional golfer to publicly come out. So Tad was a star teenage sensation when he was in his teens as teenage sensation. <laughs> but this is about 10 years ago is what I was trying to say. And he, you know, he became, I think it was the second at the time, the second youngest to ever make the cut in a PGA Tour event. He had a lot of other first. His pro career has stalled in and out. So he hasn't made as many waves as maybe his early success would have, you know, forecasted. But he's continued to be, you know, an outspoken and important member of the golfing community. Last year, I believe he opened up about mental illness and depression and anxiety and really shared his story in that way, which is always really powerful. And then this week he came out and said that, you know, he did this on in an Instagram post. It happened to be on World Suicide Day. And he just said very powerfully that, you know, he wanted to publicly come out, that, you know, hiding who he was for so many years as part of what led to his struggles with mental illness and that he was, you know, he wanted to be a public face for the LGBTQ community. And it's a beautiful post. We'll link it in the notes. You should definitely go read it. But I think like there's a few reasons why this didn't get a lot of attention. Number one, the fact that he, you know, he has not been a, he's not one of the biggest names in golf. He's a name that a lot in the golfing community remember from his early success, but he hasn't been having success lately. And number two, you have to wonder if golf being such a conservative sport kind of made people want to just kind of glide right past this. <laughs> But I think it's really important not to. It's really important to take a moment and celebrate the fact that he came out. There weren't a lot of golfers who tweeted their support. I actually don't know if there were any. And once again, he's not a regular presence on the tour these days. I don't know that he knows a lot of the current golfers. I don't know what his relationship is with everyone. So I don't want to make I don't want to make a huge deal out of that. But I would have really liked to have seen more outpouring of support from the PGA players. And from the LPGA players, there was one tweet from the PGA Tour account that kind of just said very kind of by the books that he was, that Tad was the first believed to have come out publicly. And so that was a nice acknowledgement, at least. And then the USGA, the US Golf Association, also released a tweet saying something along the lines of, you know, it's nice, you know, golf is for everyone. But you know, golf is certainly one of the sports that has been the most conservative, they've been the most uh, vocally supportive of President Trump, and they don't have pride nights, they don't, you know, there's not, it's not (laughs) promoted as being an inclusive sport, to say the least. So you know, it would have been nice to see a little bit more of a rallying around Tad. But 
luck the good thing is there wasn't a lot of negative i didn't see a lot of negative things either i read a a piece on golf.com saying well maybe this is progress the fact that it wasn't that big of a deal but i don't think golf has earned <laughs> that much you know like leeway like i think golf is a sport that really needs these visible role models really needs its biggest names to be speaking up for the lgbtq community and that it really really matters so we want to push people to do more but here on this podcast, I just wanted to say to thank Tad for coming forward and uh, thank him for being himself. And I am sure that he helped so many people. So on this show in recent episodes, Lindsay has talked about the plight of Sky Blue in the NWSL. I mentioned in a burn pile a few weeks ago, the Puerto Rican women's national team protesting their federation during a game. Brenda has talked about the Argentinian national team. And it seems like more things are coming out about women's soccer teams, especially in the Caribbean, in um, the United States, in Latin America, who are facing a lot of barriers from their federation. And as we move into World Cup qualifiers, when we have CONCACAF coming up, all of these things are coming more public and it all in all seems to be a sad state of affairs for women's soccer in North America. So I wanted to jump in and dig through some of this and see parallel problems. What are some of these squads facing and what should we be looking out for as we move into qualifiers? Shireen? Thanks, Samira. So I'm really glad you qualified that and said that because the state of women's soccer in so many places, although the women themselves, the players, the coaches, the volunteers, and the fans are incredible in so many ways. I mean, we cite the positivity that we see Providence Park and Portland. We talk about, you know, how Seattle is this like the playoffs between Seattle and Portland are riveting, but we also need to really talk about when we talk about empowerment of women in sport through soccer, we have to look at the obvious shady places. One of those shady places and the women that aren't getting the support they need. And when I say shady, I'm talking about the federations just have consistently let down these players and those teams. First of all, I'm going to point to Trinidad and Tobago. Now, very recently, and you'll hear on Amira's interview with Lauren later on in the episode, a lot of the players had actually taken to social media to go out and request things like snacks. Like we're talking, they requested protein snacks, bananas, water, training facilities, access to money so they could have transportation. Previously on the show, Brenda has gone into detail to talk about the Argentine women's team and how they've traveled in like broken buses for like 18 hours at a time. Like this isn't uncommon. And we've seen this before. I mean, what's happening in Trinidad and Tobago is actually not new. Before the CONCACAF qualifiers, which are basically the qualifiers leading up to the World Cup, I remember at the time I was absolutely appalled and and mortified by the fact that the coach at the time named uh, Randy Waldron had actually took taken to Twitter to implore the soccer community, the women's soccer community in general, for support for that team, the Trinidad and Tobago team, the Soka Warriors, who were going to touch down in Texas and had nothing available. They barely had accommodations. They had no water. They had no equipment. And I'm wondering, how can this happen? How is it possible that the Federation would let those players who, who ended up placing fourth in that tournament, so they're, you know, they're pretty good in the 
considering the fact they have absolutely no equipment and support. So this is not something we've seen before. And at this time, if everybody will recall, there was a lot of attention given to what was called the turf wars in terms of the U.S. national players being very vocal about the in, in, in collaboration with players like Nadine Anger and talking about how they were terribly unhappy to be playing on turf. So I actually wrote a blog piece back then, 2014, in the fall, and just sort of talked about, I totally understand the frustration for the turf wars, but we're talking about teams here whose stories are not getting amplified, whose struggles are not given any attention. They don't have water. Like, I'm sorry, let's focus emergency urgently on what needs to be talked about. And sadly, four years later, it's still the same case for Trinidad and Tobago. I think this is... FIFA needs to do an emergency intervention here. Karina LeBlanc, who's like the new representative for women on FIFA and New World, really needs to roll up her sleeves and get involved here because this is super problematic. Yeah, I'd just like to add something about the FIFA. This year, FIFA unveiled, rolled out its new development scheme, which is called FIFA Forward. And in the past, each women's national team got $36,000 per year. And as a minimum, right, that they were supposed to be given, right? I, Yeah, but wait, because it gets worse. And none of that was ever, there is no, there was no accountability structure, meaning the confederations received it from FIFA, the confederations pass it on to the federations. The federations are not ever required to report how they spend that money, which means that money never ends up, you know, there's no water. Like, I mean, that's what happens because it's actually an incentive for them to funnel that money into the men's teams, obviously. And we saw during the 2015 arrests in Zurich that CONCACAF member nations were central to the embezzlement and mismanagement of funds. Now there's this new program got rolled out January 2018, and it, it, it actually does not require a minimum spent on women. At all, So there's incentives to spend on women that are really important incentives that could equal about 100000 per team. But the Federation has to take the initiative to, to ask for that money and to make a program to develop women's soccer. And so far as I can see, nobody's doing that. So, you know, this is this is it, it's disgusting, really. It's it's criminal quite honestly, and I just really feel for all these women. And I agree with Shreen. Karina LeBlanc, our hopes are pinned on you. It's really appalling. Lindsay, do you have any Sky Blue updates? I do. So they finished their season. They did not go winless. They won their final game, which was great for them. And they had their porta potty the entire time. They had the porta potties at the training facility. They had the trailer with the shower in it. And just, you know, they, after all of the conditions came out, I guess I should take a moment to uh, catch up people who might not have heard our previous episodes, though. I mean, what are you doing if you haven't heard our previous episodes? But anyways, we can talk about that later. <laughs> but this is so Sky Blue FC is the New Jersey team in the National Women's Soccer League. And a couple of months ago, reports came out in Equalizer Soccer, in a few other 
women's soccer publications about just kind of the deplorable conditions within the organization. Um, porta potties at the training facility, no plumbing at the training facility. Um, they, you know, they're given the smallest amount of money possible on travel days. Their travel accommodations are just horrific. They're often staying in the worst hotels when they do get to their locations, you know, not really given enough food to eat <laughs> and not reimbursed for things such as medical expenses and just, you know, general food, general self-care things that they should be taken care of. Uh, I mean, there's no luxurious training facilities, as I mentioned, and that goes to just care, like Carly Lloyd taking a ice bath in a trash can. That's something that's happening. So, you know, just amateur below amateur. And after this came out, you know, there were all the usual proclamations. Oh, we're horrified. We'll definitely do something about this. Uh, one of the people who owns the team is the New Jersey governor, Phil Murphy, who's supposed to be, you know, proud Democrat who loves to support women's sports. And so, but of course, nothing happened. Nothing got better throughout the after this came out and they just kind of had to live through the rest of their season in these conditions and now it's really time for u.s soccer in the women's soccer league to step up because uh, the, the problem is that nobody wants to see this team fold they don't want to see another team fold like the boston breakers did last year but you also can't accept the most subpar conditions possible just because you know you don't want to fold it's something that women's sports can't just accept whatever they're given. But a good sign, I think, is that Carly Lloyd, who is on this team, of course, former FIFA player of the year, she had been very silent about this. Carly Lloyd doesn't like to speak up much. She doesn't really stick her neck out. But at the end of the season, she really did actually kind of take a stand and talk about how she admitted, look, I'm a little bit removed from everything. I have my own house. I don't have to stay in player housing. I'm older than a lot of the, the people here. You know, she's very much just in and out. But, she, you know, she came out and said, you know, I hate to say it. It's a little different when a 26-year-old is talking about their roommate. But she said, as the season went on, I started to talk more and more with players and didn't really know the stuff that in prior years had gone on. Some of this stuff was incredibly shocking. She went on to say there needs to be some accountability and some professionalism, and I think we do need to make that better. I think that all the things have come out. We can say to ourselves, that's a good thing. How can we make this better? Because we don't want another team folding. We don't want another team that's kind of falling out of the pack in the NWSL. So Carly Lloyd is from New Jersey, and she's really made a, a commitment to stay with the team as long as it is there. You know, she wants to be near her family, but they need her in this fight. And so I was glad to see her finally speak up late, but it was better than. Okay, I'm just going to throw in and just push back a little on the Carly Lloyd thing. The fact that she has to say as the season went on, I started to talk to other players. What does that even mean? This is Carly Lloyd, her voice. And when she was asked about this initially, she said consistently, no comment, no comment. Now, as someone who like loves soccer and follows it, she said nothing for a very long time. And you can't absolve yourself by saying, well, I have my own house. How can you 
you not be aware that there's porta potties and the training conditions are crappy? Yes, you get endorsements. Yes, you're the darling of, you know, the U.S. Soccer Association because of your phenomenal goal, which I absolutely love, which in my opinion, as I digress, is far better than Beckham's from half during the World Cup final. But that's not the point. I'm not going to give Carly Lloyd any cookies here. Like then we see the likes of people like like Pino. Pino goes out on a limb all the time. There's a reason why she's beloved. There's a reason why. And and you know what? I'm sorry. Pino has the guts to do and follow convictions. I don't expect everyone to be an activist, but Carly Lloyd, it was happening to her in front of her, around her. Like Rapino gets up and talks about stuff that doesn't necessarily affect her, which makes her a great ally. Carly Lloyd can't even stand up and say anything about what's happening in front of her face under her nose. I'm sorry. No cookies for Carly. You don't have to give her cookies, but you have to say it's important for the future of this fight that she's speaking up now. That doesn't mean, that doesn't absolve her from not speaking out previously, but I've given up hope of her ever speaking out, period, because of how ridiculous she had been. So what I'm saying is that for the future of this fight, for the future of this team, Carly Lloyd has to be speaking out. There's no other way. So at least she's doing it now. Yeah, but I just am not going to look to her to lead the fight. You can't join the fight like three quarters way through and then expect to be in a leadership position on it. Like it doesn't, Sam Kerr did more for that team in terms of speaking out and she wasn't even on the team anymore. So, I mean, we're, we've got to look for a different strategy of someone to lead and that's part of the problem. So I think it's really important to put the sky blue conversation in context with these other federations. One, because I think there's a way in which some people could look at Trinidad and Tobago or Puerto Rico or Argentina and say, okay, well, these are maybe not Argentina, but these are developing or less resource countries. Of course, they don't value women's soccer. And there's a kind of fallacy that the United States is like been the best gold standard for how they treat women in in sports and that they're like, head and shoulders around above the rest of the world. And I think, of course, if you're using the national team as the standard, that obfuscates some of the very real barriers these other teams are facing, like Sky Blue. And so I think it's important to put it in a conversation together. And so if we do, if we take Sky Blue and Trinidad and Tobago and Puerto Rico and Argentina and Jamaica, and we take all of these issues together and the Federation's kind of lack of concern and resource allocation towards development of women's sports, what are the takeaways? Is this a conversation about the devaluation of women's soccer or women's football globally or especially in North America? Does this point to a problem with federations in general? Like what what are some of the takeaways of this larger conversation? That women are supposed to just be happy with what they're given and <laughs> that in order to get anything above the bare minimum, and I think it's generous to even call the conditions we're talking about the bare minimum in many cases, you have to speak up and you have to fight that there are people in, in power who still do not see this as a priority, see it as a burden that they have to give anything to women's soccer. And so I just think it just shows that like the fight is just far from over. Yeah. And I mean, for me, it points very much at how federations are irresponsible and don't care the way that they're supposed to, regardless of how many publications and reports FIFA puts out. I agree with Lindsay. Women are expected to just get whatever they get and just be happy with it. Never mind that they win championships. Like, what do they actually have to do beyond be the best of the best of the best? And I blame those federations. I will, like, forever be frustrated with the lack of support they get at that level. It's it's deplorable. I guess the thing that's most disheartening for me 
in terms of a takeaway is that it just actually reflects the larger point, which is that women just aren't worth men's time it's or resources. It's just, it's blatant and it's just, they don't care. They don't care. Women aren't allowed to represent the nation. Women aren't allowed to ask for things. And you could say women make progress. And I remember this beautiful quote by Jorge Valdano that I love so much that says, you know, soccer is the most important of unimportant things. And it's just like, it's if, if it's so unimportant, then why do you fight it so hard? You know, why is it so hard for them all the time just to get the bare minimum of of respect and a, a modicum of, of equality, even in places like Norway, you know, so when we say soccer's maybe best landscape is U.S. for women, it's not really because pay equity isn't even there. Even when women sell more tickets than men, it doesn't matter. So no arguments actually matter because they're just not true. The only one that's true is they don't care about women and they're not worth their time. So I, I know it's like simple, but I, that is my takeaway. This week, two players from different national teams both took to social media to lambast the conditions and lack of resources their squads had in preparation for CONCACAF. I spoke to both Lauren Hutchinson and Lauren Silver, who represent Trinidad and Tobago and Jamaica respectively, to dig a little bit deeper on these issues and ask them about the current state of the women's game and what they think needs to be done moving forward to ensure that these teams, these women have the support and resources that they need to continue to compete at a high level. First up is Lauren Hutchinson. That's Lauren with a Y. Lauren is a defender for the Soka Warriors as the Trinidad and Tobago women's national team. She also played at VCU and was a standout there. And she's been with the national team for about seven years. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I'm so grateful for this opportunity. And I appreciate everyone that's tuning in too. So if you could just to start us off, what's going on? What's happening here? Yeah, well, I at the end of the day, I think it's what's going on is the same mistake. I think in general, there's a, a repeating situation of the lack of resources or the support that national teams need to be successful. You know, my mom's a school teacher, and I talk about this all the time. You know, when she goes into the classroom, she doesn't expect the children to get A's without providing the tools that they need. Uh, she creates the culture for them. She makes their make sure that she that they can flourish under her and they can, you know, get those grades and, and be successful and learn those concepts. But she has to imply that first. And I feel like the same concept has to be applied to these national teams. You know, they expect us to, you know, come to training camp, you know, perform and not be given the resources and then qualify for these World Cups and, you know, the Olympics. And they're like, once you qualify, we'll be able to provide all those resources. But what about trying to help us out and trying to support us in the best way? So I think at this point, you know, a lot of a lot of national team players, not just for my own national team, but for other national teams too, are in a situation of they want and need more support. And this is the only way that we know how to get support right now. One of the alarming things that you mentioned on the video that you posted to social media was that there was not going to be a training camp before CONCACAF. So when I originally did my first post, there were talks about a camp, but there's mm-hmm. nothing in, in writing. And until we saw something in writing, there's no camp. So, you know, once once the video went viral, there were talks about doing a camp. So that video really got the ball rolling with some things. 
So right now what I'm doing is I'm hosting uh, four of my teammates in Richmond, Virginia, and we're doing our own mini prep camp because we just don't have any, we, we, we run out of time. Okay. With the hopes of an official national team camp next week, there's still nothing in writing, but at least it's being talked about now. So as of okay. today, there's, you know, there's nothing on board, but there, hopefully, fingers crossed, there will be a camp next week. If not, we'll just continue our, our mini, you know, prep kit here. Yeah, it's wild that you're essentially throwing your own camp this close to CONCACAF. So let me know, what needs to be done? What can be done to support Trinidad and Tobago's national team right now? Yeah, I, I think it's not letting the conversation die after CONCACAF. Whatever happens, happens at CONCACAF, whether, you know, we qualify or another, you know, other teams qualify. But what happens is, is it's these amazing stories. And then as soon as it's done, it's never talked about until another three, four years. And it needs to be talked about immediately. So as soon as these CONCACAF and World Cup qualifying in, a, in, in World Cup and Olympics are done, it needs to be okay. These are the teams that need support. These are the teams that need help. How are we going to put a plan in place to help as much as we can? And that's the point of this whole thing is to bring the community together, to spread positivity, and give all the national team players the correct environment to train. Right. And this is not just Trinidad and Tobago, right? Like, So on the show, we've talked about federations that are, are facing similar issues from Jamaica to Argentina to Puerto Rico and even the NWSL, like Sky Blue, where you have like players taking ice baths and garbage cans. So what does it say about the state of women's soccer? It seems like you have some very well-resourced teams, but then you have all of these federations that seem to be letting women down and letting these players down who are supposed to be representing these countries. Yeah. You know, it's crazy because in my brain, I go through so many different emotions because if you look at women's soccer, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, there were no teams that were mm. able to even compete in these positions. So I try to look at it in the most positive light as I can, is that there are teams now, and there are teams that are competing and that are catching up to some of the bigger teams in the world. So I'm really happy that the game is evolving, but it's like we're still trying to catch up with all the resources and how to organize and how to get this and how to support the ladies the best way we can. And I do think the sport is growing, but I think now that it's grown to a place where we've got these amazing teams, absolutely tremendous talent, now we have to be able to match it with those that support and those resources. It's unfortunate some of the stories that come out and of course social media today, you know, things can be, you know, spread across the world in seconds. So I think we just really need to start talking about it and support each other. So does the pressure, like where does it need to be applied? Does it need to be applied at the federations? Does it need to go up to CONCACAF and FIFA? Like where is it just that all of these junctures need to do better? Is it all hands on deck kind of situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And the answer to that question is, I have no idea. I just want to be able to put pressure wherever it needs to be. If it's a group effort and it needs to be, you know, federation, players, coaches, CONCACAF, FIFA, and all those things, awesome. I'm still learning where, who needs to make, get the ball to move. You know what I mean? And I think that's where everyone else is too. They're like, okay, who do we need to talk to to get things moving? And that's why I think speaking on these podcasts and these awesome shows, the right person will eventually hear it and hopefully make things move for us. Yeah. One of the things that my co-host said recently is like, okay, Karina LeBlanc, you're in this position now. It's time to roll up your sleeves, get to work on. And, you know, there's some hope, right, that this is something that she can really help with in this new position. But I think this other point you raised is so important that you can't let the conversation die out after 
France next year or, you know, after the Olympics, because it's in these in-between years where a lot of this stuff gets institutionalized and resources allocated. So I think that, you know, that's such a huge point to put on people's radars is that we have to continue to talk about these issues, even when CONCACAF is not around the corner. Yeah, I appreciate it. I actually just met Karina not even two weeks ago. She, I think she just moved into her new place a few weeks ago in the United States, and she has literally been thrown into the fire. But, yeah. you know, after talking for, to her for about 10, 20 minutes, her soul and her heart is so in this, and I absolutely think that she's going to be someone that's going to be a huge cornerstone from the logistical side for growing women's soccer, you know, just not in this country in the United States, but also around the world. That's it's wonderful. Just, yeah, she's phenomenal. So I'm really excited to be getting her on board with some things. All right, before I get off the phone with you, I have to know CONCACAF is coming up quite fast and you have a draw with United States, Mexico, Panama. So what are you looking forward to? What are you excited about about this tournament? I mean, it's a dream. It is such an honor to put on, you know, the red, white, and black and represent and inspire so many people. And not only that, I own a business here in Richmond, Virginia called Evolve that, you know, empowers young women. And the families that have come out to help us have been amazing. And it inspires new girls too. And now they're fans of Trinidad and Tobago, not just as a team, but for the country. So I'm excited to represent the country. I'm excited to be around the best players in the world because I think CONCACAF is extremely competitive. I'm excited to travel. I'm excited, you know, to for the grind. I mean, we're already in the grind, but the grind of 90 minutes plus on the field and fighting and, and just, you know, being with my sisters and, and really, you know, doing everything in my power to qualify for a World Cup. It's, it's the dream. It's, it's everyone, every little girl's dream. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for coming on Burn It All Down. We're definitely going to have the Soka Warriors on our radar, be watching you guys in CONCACAF. And we want to continue to amplify these issues. So from all my flamethrowers, you can, for more information, I'm going to link Lauren's social media pages, as well as ways to help to the show notes. Lauren, thanks so much again for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you to everyone tuning in. Be kind to one another and just live out that passion. Thank you so much. Next, I spoke to Lauren Silver. Lauren's a midfielder with the Reggae Girls, Jamaican women's national team. She played soccer at University of Florida and has been playing in the Jamaican national system for about four years now. And like Lauren Hutchinson, she also took to social media this week to talk about some of the issues her squad was facing as they prepare for CONCACAF. Lauren, welcome to the show. Can you start us off by giving us the lay of the land? What are some of the issues that the reggae girls are facing right now? Right. So we're about two weeks out, I think, from CONCACAF, which is, you know, the biggest tournament that I'll ever play in, that most of the girls will ever play in. And we have no camp up till today. They're trying to bring some of the girls in, I think, like, you know, a couple of days before the tournament starts. But really, there's not really much that can be accomplished in that time. So... Right now, everybody's in their designated spot. Some of the girls are at, you know, their colleges. Some girls are still in high school, so they're playing club soccer still. Some girls are playing professionally overseas and have contracts. And then there's some girls like myself who are uncontracted players trying to kind of scramble to make sure that we get the work in that we need to so we can be prepared. Yeah, and going into a tournament as big as CONCACAF, you would expect to have more resources from your federation, correct? Right. So we have... We don't have any any resources from the Federation as of now, which includes which could include per diem. It can include at camp. It can include 
you know, like even if we're out here training by ourselves, like they could be like somehow finding a way to sponsor us, which isn't happening either. So right now the there's two girls, Chinny, Asher and Allison Slaby, um, the midfielder and me and Colch from Florida. And we are staying with an owner of a gym who's also Jamaican. His name is Manny Mayer. And he owns one to one fitness in Colch from Florida. So he's sponsoring us by allowing us to use his gym to do all of our strength training. He also owns a recovery center where we do normal tech fluting, we get massages, we also get nutritional like smoothies and protein shakes and all that kind of stuff there. So they're sponsor he's sponsoring all of that for the three of us. He's also sponsoring us to live in his house for the remainder the time that we've been here. So we'll be here about a month by the time we get to Concert And so he's sponsoring us also living here. And we're using a trainer uh, as well. His name is Eco, and that's one of our players, uh, Christina Chang, her fiance, who's who's spending his time training us for free. So he's been doing that for us. And then let me see what who else we have going. We pretty much have the, all these resources here that we've had to seek out ourselves, and none of this is coming from the JFF. And we're here just with, you know, with the resources that we can pull together kind of at the last minute. And we're kind of exhausting those at this point. So if you will, for casual soccer fans, can you tell us a little bit about what should a federation be doing, especially leaning into a major tournament? What do you expect from the JFF? So what I would expect from the JFF and like any, any federation that wants us to succeed at a high level, not just to maintain or, or, or to kind of just function at a low level, but to, to, to really succeed, to really see us uh, flourish as a team, there should be contracts, number one, on the team. So, for instance, for a player, for people who don't know soccer, I'm 25 years old. I'm, I should be playing on a professional team. And at some point, I probably will be this year. I'm, so I'm looking at, out at some teams, actually, and looking to play this coming year. But I should be playing on a professional team. And I should be contracted by Jamaica. So every time we have a camp where we have a tournament that they want me to participate in, I have a ongoing contract with them that, that pays me to mm. do that. So then when I leave my given club or I leave, you know, my job, I'm still having a source of income. Right now, that's, that's not a thing. Nor for the boys team as well. The men's team, they're not contracted, I don't think. For us to run properly, we need camps and not just seven-day camps or five-day camps before a huge tournament. So, for instance, we went and participated in, in the Caribbean finals for the World Cup qualifiers in Jamaica about two weeks ago. And before we got there, we had, I think it was five days or, or something like that to come into camp. And then straight from camp, we had to go straight into our tournament. And now if you think about it, like girls like me, who there's there's like six of us, I think, or seven of us, I'm not sure that not that are not under contract or are not playing in colleges or in high school or on club teams, we don't have proper training. So when we go into a camp like that, we, we have to rely heavily on ourselves to like get that to come into camp in, in shape and be able to play 90-minute games, which is hard to accomplish when you're not playing in a team setting. So if we have more camps throughout the year, it'll give more of the girls an opportunity to be playing on a regular basis. Plus, maybe it'll give us more opportunities to find more clubs overseas for players to be placed on so that they're getting the proper training before they even get into camp in the first place. Other things that we, we would need, you know, making sure we have the proper meal, feeding our bodies and fueling our bodies with, you know, with good proteins and carbohydrates and, and good fats, like stuff that'll help us, you know, like vegetables and, and lean meat, fruit, stuff like that. A dietitian, a nutritionist who's on staff to make sure that we're doing those things. What else could we, a functioning federation need? We need backing and support from the actual federation, the people believing in us. We need the social media to be on, on their A game. 
Okay, so if you look at the JFS, the JFS Instagram, you know, this is a Women's World Cup campaign. We're going into the, into the World Cup 2019, you know, next year. And while it is important to continue to post for the boys who do have events and things coming up, um, the Men's World Cup passes this summer. And that's kind of done. And now it's actually like we need to really shine a light on the women's side so that we, that way people have exposure to us. We can keep, we can get out there and we're doing really well too. So it's, we have something to kind of boast about, you know, something to, to like for the social media to post about because we're winning, you know, like the social media games could be up because we're not on there as much as, as we should be. And that would really help our federation because if we're doing well, it's, it's kind of a win-win for both of us. Yeah, and I think one of the points you raised prompts this next question. Is this about federations having a lack of resources or is it about a gendered kind of allocation of those resources or a combination of both? I think the idea of men playing soccer has always been the primary thought for all of humankind, if you think about it. Like, men are always first. It's always been like that. And especially with Jamaica, the men's program has been around a lot longer and the women's program actually took a break. But like right before I went and played CONCACAF in 2014, we, like the women's program was suspended. It wasn't even, there was no women's program. So there's an inconsistency with that. And that I think was a big thing for us to overcome as, as a program. But definitely I think, I mean, the, the men get more per diem than the women's team. They, all of our gear is the, is the men's gear. It's not women's gear and men's gear. Everything is from the men's team. I remember like when I first started playing with the first time, one of the first times I ever played, with the women's program, we were wearing shirts that said reggae boys. So the gear that we're wearing is, is the boys. So pretty much everything is for the boys. And I feel like we get kind of hand-me-downs from that. Yeah. So it's definitely, it's definitely, I think, a gender inequality type type situation too. And then I also think the Federation, along with not maybe having the, all the resources they can use, I feel like they do have resources, but I don't know if they if they have the proper staff to, to manage it and allocate it properly. Hmm. And you mentioned social media before, and I wanted to know, when did you decide, how did you decide to kind of take to social media to amplify these issues? Right. So I initially I did an Instagram story that just kind of caused some chaos. And one of the newspaper places, newspapers wrote an article about me. Also, like confronting the JFS president about like some of the things I was saying. And at first I was just upset because we literally just, we came back from Jamaica and we did, a, we did such a great job. And then to kind of hear like a backlash to see, to see them come out with an article about no camp, no problem. You know, even if that is the media slurring, you know, some of the things that the JFS might be trying to say, you know, it's not okay for us to accept that message regardless. So to like have that come out and there not to be, you know, a follow-up, if, if we felt otherwise, you know, that's an unacceptable. So that kind of got me going, which is why I did the initial story. And then I came out with a live Instagram story because I wanted to, after that, I got a little bit of backlash from the JFS and from people and other articles. And honestly, you know, I don't really care, to be honest. Like, I'm supporting a bigger cause than, say, I'm supporting Jamaica. I'm supporting my teammates. I'm supporting my staff and my coaches. And more importantly, I have more integrity than that. I'm not going to let someone, um, or I'm not going to let a vision of us be blurred. We deserve a lot of respect and we deserve a lot of credibility for what we've accomplished with very little resources. So. That's just me speaking my mind. I went on and did the, the live story because I had, you know, obviously you can talk for as long as you want. And on there, I was explaining in detail what I meant by that. I have nothing against the JFS. I have nothing against anyone. I want to work with these people as closely as I can. And I want them to be as honest with us as possible so we can all accomplish the goal, which is to qualify for a World Cup. And how can we best do that? Okay, players need to have incentives. 
if there's no incentive, it's not going to happen. I'm trying to help them because I'm telling them like, yo, the players, like the players need a motivation or you're, or you're after a period of time, you're not going to see the same result. We're working off of nothing right now. You know, that gets old very fast. So the coaches are working off of nothing. The trainers are working off of nothing. Nobody's getting paid, you know, and at the end of the day, it's not all about money. The whole goal is here. We want to qualify for the World Cup, but we need these incentives, whether that's more case, you know what, we're going to have more chance or we're going to have women's jerseys or, you know, we're going to, we're going to promote the women's team more. We're going to post you guys more on social media, you know, just these, these little wins, I would call them having these little wins in here would, would go a long way for us. You know, so when you're not getting any of those things, you know, it makes qualifying for a World Cup. We already have so many obstacles in the way. The JFF and, like, the Federation shouldn't be another adversity for us. We should work alongside of each other to, to accomplish this goal of qualifying for a World Cup. But if they want, you know, respect from us, we need to receive respect as well. One of the things you say on your video is this would not happen in the United States. Now, certainly we see with something like Sky Blue and the NWSL that there's, you know, issues internally here too. But as a larger federation, the U.S. Women's National Team, Canada, France, they're fairly well-resourced teams, relatively speaking. So I'm wondering what, you know, is there a larger body? Does like FIFA need to intervene to figure out a way to kind of quell some of the disparities between these federations? What are you looking at as like the commonalities or barriers between getting places like Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago to have more resources? Right. So I'm not even, I'm not an expert in the CONCACAF FIFA distribution allocation of resources. So I'm not going to pretend. So that's my little disclaimer. There it is, you know, in case someone else wants to write another article about something that I said. (laughs) So I have no idea about those particular monies and where they go and how that works. But I do think that there is a bit of this, not entitlement, but expectation that that the United States and, you know, in, in Canada you know, they've always qualified for it deservingly. You know, they've always shown up and they always take it professionally, not just the players, but the coaching staff, not just the coaching staff, but for the most part, even with the U.S. Federation, every federation, they have their politics, but they're doing their politics better than us, you know, which is why they're succeeding. But I think there is a bit of a discrepancy between, you know, between the United States and Canada and teams like that that have a bit more stature compared to, you know, the Caribbean teams and, and Latin American countries. I think I don't know how their resources are handled. And I also don't know, I don't know where our federation even gets their money or gets their their resources. And I don't know how they allocate it. So we might be getting things that we might not be allocating it properly, or we might be discriminated against not getting enough of the resources. And thus, thus we are allocating it properly, but, but we're not getting funded enough. I don't know how that works, but it does seem to be a trend to me. And I think something happens up, something that happens over and over again isn't a coincidence and it needs to be addressed. And I've reached out. I've, I've tagged CONCACAF FIFA. I've tagged Karina LeBlanc, who is supposed to be the woman, I think like, the woman's head, uh, yeah. Yeah. She's the woman's like designated side for CONCACAF. And I feel like that's why I also promoted this idea about doing maybe a player's union like they do in the NFL, you know, some, some place for players to come together from all countries. Cause the U.S., though they, they might have more research, more resources than us and, you know, are extremely successful. They have their own struggles as well. They're different than ours. And I'm not going to sit here and say like, I mean, I feel like our issues right now are, are really troubling because we're struggling to even, to even get camps to get into, you know, into the CONCACAF to qualify for the World Cup. So our struggles are a lot more complex than theirs in that sense, but they still have struggles too. 
you know, and this is an opportunity for players to get together and to talk about all those things, to come together and to understand, like, these federations. Like, it shouldn't be a secret what's going on in the federation. Like, I should have knowledge. I should be able to know, like, is there a discrepancy between the Caribbean and the United States and Canadian Federation? And if there is, what is it? Like, the fact that that is not common knowledge just goes to show that, like, there's some sneaky things going on. So I want to pivot a little bit before I let you go here and ask you about CONCACAF itself. You have a draw with the three C's, Canada, Costa Rica, and Cuba. What are you looking forward to about this tournament? Is there anything in particular you're excited about? How do you feel about the draws? I mean, I'm excited to play. Like, just to be able to play at an international level on a platform like that is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So I'm excited personally to play because I, I just love the game. And that's why I'm still playing. And, I mean, I'm looking forward to getting to play these really competitive, diverse sides. So Canada, you know, a team that, like, we have never seen before. We've mainly ever, only ever played Caribbean teams. And then just as recently, we played Colombia, Venezuela, Costa Rica, Cuba, which, I mean, well, uh, Cuba was with us in um, the Caribbean final, but we'll see them again. And we just recently played a lot of these, these different teams. So it'd be nice to play against Canada, a team that we've never played against, and, and at, a, at a level that they play at. I just want to see where we, where we hang with them. I'm excited about the group of girls that we have, and then I'm excited to see this group of girls in action against a side like Canada. I think we can hang. Like, I want to see us compete. So I'm excited to see that. I'm excited to play Costa Rica and Cuba again because of the two teams that we've, we've actually had the opportunity to play this year. So to get to play them again and, and have seen them play and understand their style and to see us play and, and have to adapt to it, I'm excited to just play against them again and, and see, see how that goes. Yes, and well, we are so excited to watch the regular girls get to work. So we will continue to do what we can to try to amplify your voices and your stories. And we'll also be watching you on the field in just a few weeks. So thank you so much, Lauren. Best of luck. And thank you again for coming on Burn It All Down. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, the burn pile. Brenda, what are you torching today? I'm torching something that happened in Argentina. And I have to say, I'm so sorry that Argentina ends up on my burn pile so often. But I hope that Argentines understand it as a point of love. I think that Argentine sport culture is fascinating. I study it. I lived there last semester and I miss it. But this is some serious bullshit, what you're about to hear right now. So seven-year-old Candelaria Cabrera, who lives in Santa Fe, Argentina, and is a soccer player, and you should remember Santa Fe as the home of a region in Argentina that is the home of Messi and many other amazing, amazing talents. And so what happened is she's been playing on the club Oracan, which is a very like traditional, long-standing club in Argentina. She's like a seven-year-old phenom, totally obsessed with soccer, tons of talent for seven. I mean, God, like my kids are playing soccer and like, they're just like, what? I have a game today. This is like totally the self-motivated kid that just loves, loves, loves it. And she's on this club. And because of an, an antiquated law, not law, regulation, basically it says there's no mixed soccer teams in Santa Fe. And AFA could have, the Argentine Federation could have chose to ignore it, but they didn't. And Ortecan, her club, got a letter telling them that she needed to be kicked off the team. She's, her and her mom just cried and cried is what her mom said to the press. And she said, you know, um, Candelaria told me that the people who make these laws, they're bad people. 
And I'll tell you, there's no girls teams. There, it means she can't play. It doesn't mean like I tried to get my daughter into a club play in Argentina. We probably went to like 20 different clubs and there are, there are teams at like the age of like 11 and 12, but not that young. There's not mixed teams that young. And so anyway, essentially the Argentine Federation, you're making little girls cry. So I want to, I want to burn that, burn that rule and burn them for enforcing it. Burn. 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 Shireen, what are you burning? Just so we don't make North America, Latin America feel like they're the only sexist ones in football, my burn comes directly from the Calcutta Football League. Now, the championship was won by a team called Mohan Bagan, and their president said after the win, blatantly sexist comments, quote, Daughters were being born for the last seven years, and suddenly a son has been born. How would you like it if that was the case with you? I have the same feeling, giggled Bose, who is fondly known as Tutu. Now, Tutu, let me tell you something. Associating and affiliating a win with having birthing a boy is nonsensical, ridiculously steeped in patriarchy, and unfair to the millions of girls who play soccer in India, including UA, which is an amazing organization in Ranchi, India, which actually helps prevent human trafficking and uses football as a means to empower young girls to stay in school and stay healthy and provide their communities and participate. So this tutu is literally, you know, he apologized later with one of those really vacuous, I'm so sorry, I didn't actually mean to offend anyone, it's not me type of non-apologies. Of course it's you, you said it, didn't you? Twat waffle. Anyways, so that's what I'm burning. Burn. Yeah, I'm gonna take us back to the United States for my burn. And I don't know if anybody remembers this story back in March about a Cincinnati, University of Cincinnati volleyball player, Shalom Ifanye, who was dismissed from the team because of her kind of Instagram pictures. And so one of the things that happened with this case is that her coach continuously was policing her Instagram pictures, telling her they were inappropriate, sending her text messages with screenshots of her IG posts saying, you need to delete these. And in these text messages, you can see Shalom saying, but I'm fully closed. There's people on our team that are in bikinis. It's not my fault that I have curves. It's not my fault that I have a chest. I feel like you're body shaming me. I feel like you're penalizing me as a black woman. Like it's not my fault that I'm not tiny and white. And this, these exchanges kept going on and on with her coach taking a picture and say, what would see, what do you think if a football player saw this picture, you are, you know, too sensual or a series of critiques about her body and what she put on her Instagram page, which eventually led to her dismissal from the University of Cincinnati volleyball team. So that's the backstory to the fact that Shalom then filed a lawsuit against the University of Cincinnati for this dismissal and her her racist, sexist treatment while she was a student there. This week, it was announced that University of Cincinnati settled with Shalom for $40,000 on the condition that she never enroll in Cincinnati again or ever play for their team again. And so 
While this may seem like a win, the thing that I want to burn in particular is it's another case in which we can see the ridiculousness of the NCAA shamaturism and transfer rules. Again, the NCAA, which does not penalize coaches for, say, jumping ship to schools in the middle of the year, getting out of their contract and taking another job, and yet for players who do that, they need to sit out a year. And so now we have a case with a young woman who was horribly treated by her coach, who was body shamed because of her thickness, her blackness, her her body, and was dismissed from the team based on that. Enough to reach a settlement in a lawsuit with this university because they she had screenshots of all these text messages and at the end of the day even though she has won her lawsuit because of NCAA transfer rules she still can't play anywhere if she transfers somewhere which she can never play at Cincinnati again so if she wants to play basketball again she's a senior she can't she would have to sit out a year and so essentially this is how her basket her vol oh, I meant volleyball So essentially, this is how her volleyball career has ended, a sport she's played her entire life. It's ended with the shame of being policed for her body type. It's ended in a lawsuit. And it's ended with the game that she likes so much being now put out of reach because of the NCAA's stupid amateurism rules. And that is, my friends, what I want to burn down. Burn. 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 Lindsay, take us home. What are you burning? Well, I know you'll all be shocked that this has to do with the Nasser case. I just feel that it is my obligation to each week remind you that there are new things to burn about this. So this week, first of all, it's worth noting that this week was the marked the two-year anniversary of the Indianapolis Star first publishing the allegations of abuse against Nasser. Uh, that was when Rachel Den Hollander first came forward. So this has now been in our lives for two years. But in a federal lawsuit filed this week, Erica Davis, who was a former field hockey player at Michigan State University, alleges that trigger warning, uh, obviously skip ahead a couple minutes if you don't want to listen to this. But she alleges that Nassar drugged and raped her during a medical appointment back in 1992 when she was only 17 years old. This rape was reportedly videotaped and it rep- he reportedly impregnated her during this, though she later suffered a miscarriage. This lawsuit also says that George Perlis, who was the school's athletic director in 92 and is currently, as in today, right now, a MSU trustee on the board of trustees, Perlis reportedly knew about the allegations and the existence of a video back in 92, but intervened to keep them quiet. Davis also tried to go to the Michigan State Police Department in October of 92, but the detective explicitly told her that he was powerless to investigate anything in the athletic department. Now, this lawsuit is significant because, well... It's just significant, the allegations themselves. But in in the context of the broader scope of the Nasser investigation, this is the first time someone has accused Nasser of rape through, I guess, what you would call intercourse. Everything else has been digital. So, and it's also the, it's not the earliest known incident of Nasser's sexual abuse, but it is the earliest instance of someone reporting it to Michigan State. This is five years earlier than we previously had heard that someone had reported Nasser's assaults to Michigan State. 
So we now know that there's a possibility that Michigan State could have prevented this if they had actually acted lawfully in 92. They would have prevented so much. So I just want to throw all that on the burn pile, most notably that there is a Michigan State trustee current day who reportedly knew about this. Burn. After all that burning, it's time to recognize some badass women. First, Lucia Barbuto, the first woman president of the Argentine club Banfield to preside over a first division football club in the entire country. Also, want to shout out the University of Oregon's women's soccer team, which is not only off to a great start, but it attributes it to the open discussions of Black Lives Matter and their socioeconomic differences. They embrace teammates who have put fists in the air in a call for attention of issues of racial inequality, and they continue as a team to take critical stands and have these hard conversations about social injustice and inequality. This nomination for Badass Woman of the Week comes to us from flamethrower Susie Steffen. Thank you for this nomination. They are certainly doing badass work over there in Oregon. Also want to highlight the sky blue keeper, Kaylin Sheridan, who had an NWSL record of 108 C's on this season, despite all the mayhem that is happening with that soccer club. Congrats to you, Kayleen. In Darfur, the Darfur United Women's Team, in collaboration with IACT, has announced that they are underway in creating the United Women's Team, the first ever soccer team of Darfuri women living in refugees camps in eastern Chad. This will give Darfuri women the first opportunity they had in their lives to be part of an organized soccer team, as this sport is typically reserved for men in their community. That's very exciting. I can't wait to see that come to fruition. Also want to shout out Zena Nasser, the new German featherweight champion. And also Irtika Ayub, a rugby player from occupied Kashmir region of India, who just won the talent award at the Eminence Awards ceremony. She is certainly an inspiration. And now a drum roll, please. <laughs> No surprise here. Our badass women of the week goes to the Seattle Storm WNBA champions. The Seattle Storm swept the Washington Mystics, winning game three on Wednesday night. Brianna Stewart led the entire way of that game and averaged 25 points and six rebounds in the whole series, which is one of the big reasons that she was named finals MVP. This is the third title for the Storm, who also won the title in 2004 and 2010. So congrats to the Seattle Storm, WNBA champions, yet again. All right, y'all, what's good in your lives? Bren? What's good in my life? Kind of, like, I, I'm kind of being crushed by the weight of work. And yeah, yeah, preach. Yeah, I am, like, not super doing great with that. So sorry to everyone who might be listening to this. If I owe you papers, um, <laughs> if I owe you articles that are late, if I owe you manuscript reviews that are late, et cetera, et cetera, I'm really sorry. It's not just you. And it's not you, it's me. So that's where I am. So what's been good is the occasional time where people share cool shit on social media. And this includes footballers with animals. 
dancing <laughs> children. And this morning it was Moya Dodd putting on some Facebook, some insane throw-in flip somebody did. Like the woman flips and throws it in. I know this has been done before, but it was especially cool. So thank you to all the people who are um, giving me short little distractions in the midst of the work shitstorm that I'm at right now. Lindsay? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, my family's in North Carolina. And so far, everybody is safe and sound. So I am definitely grateful for that. And also, you know, just sending thoughts and prayers to everybody who's being impacted by the storm down there, of course. But look, it was I got to cover a WNBA finals game this week. Oh, do you hear my dog? He's doing a little scratching. (laughs) I got to cover WNBA finals game this week. And that was a dream come true. I was sad that the Mystics couldn't extend the series. I would have loved to have covered at least one more. It was pretty remarkable to be there. And it just felt like a momentous moment for me personally. Although I have to say my body did not realize how thin I'd been strutting spreading myself during the WNBA season, essentially doing two full-time jobs. And it has just collapsed these past few days. Just been like done, done. Even though I'm not done with my work, of course, but my body is done. So yeah, but that was just remarkable. And it was so cool to see. I mean, these uh, covering the WNBA is is my, my favorite thing I do. So I was just grateful for that. And you do a tremendous job at it. So I'm like Bren, this, the pace of the semester has set in and I'm just, my to-do list is overflowing. So that's not wonderful, but I did take two days at the end of this week in the middle of kind of media mayhem around Serena and I escaped back down to the DMV and I did a guest lecture, two guest lectures actually at Morgan State in my friend Sarah's class, um, one of my closest friends, and she is starting her first year as an assistant professor at Morgan State. And I had so much fun in her class talking about Black athletes in the diaspora and athletic activism across the globe. And certainly, of course, dissecting all the latest with Kaepernick and Serena with uh, her students as well as my students. It it was very genitive conversations um, and, and different ones as well. And my real what's good is that as a part of that visit, I dragged Sarah with me to an escape room, just the two of us, and we got out with 12 minutes to spare. And so that was awesome. You know me, I love escape rooms. And it was the second one I've done in the last 10 days. And I'm hoping, cross your fingers, in just a mere two weeks to do escape room with Brenda and Shireen. And so that is what's good for me, escape rooms always. Shireen. Thank you. So I recently relaunched my website about a week ago. And then this past week, I formally announced about my inclusion and diversity consultancy business, which is a continuation of what I actually already do. It's just me being more firm and say, you don't get my time for free. Please don't email me with requests to give you 20 hours just because you know, you'd know you appreciate it and I'm a kind human. No, pay me. I'm damn good at what I do. And I'd be happy to help you out of your little conundrum that basically involves the exclusion of many marginalized, racialized communities. So that's what's good. In addition to the escape room, I just found out also that when we go to Dickinson, Brenda and I will be picked up by the same driver at the same time. So I'm extremely excited about that. I've also, I'm I'm so excited. And I'm also so excited for a little car trip with Amira to the escape room. And I've requested Missy Elliott. 
Maybe she'll show up. I don't know. I would love that. Burn it all down merch. I'm so excited for my tote bag. And today I'm going to actually go see Freedom Fields at the Toronto International Film Festival, which is an incredible documentary about young girls, young footballers in Libya post Gaddafi and how they use football to actually empower themselves and the community around them. I'm so excited to see this film. It got a standing ovation three days ago at the opening, and I'm really, really, really excited. The last film I saw at the Toronto International Film Festival about football was Bend It Like Becca over 15 years ago. So, yeah, so I'm really excited. That's it for Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but it can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts from. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so feel free to subscribe, rate, let us know what we did well and how we can improve. And if you love our podcast, share it with a friend. Tell a coworker about your favorite feminist sports podcast. Get the word out. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down or on Twitter, Burn It All Down Pod. We also are on Instagram, Burn It All Down Pod. We're available by email, burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. And certainly check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. There you'll find previous episodes, transcripts, a link to our Patreon, and as Shireen noted, also now a link to our new merchandise storefront. Get your mugs, your hoodies, your pillows. There is a lot of fun merch. There's two new logos and that is underway and available now. So if you haven't yet picked up your merchandise, head on over to the our webpage, get the link there. You can go on Twitter. You can see the link there. And if you have got merch, thank you so much for showing off the podcast and your support of the podcast. Keep throwing those flames. And as it starts to come to you, as it starts to ship to you, we would love, love, love to see you in them. So I cannot wait for the selfies with the flame shirts or the coffee mugs. I can't wait to see your matchbook pillows on your couch. So send those pictures into us. We would love to see Burn It All Down out there in our flamethrower community. So again, thank you for listening. This has been Amira Rose Davis here with Brenda Elsie, Lindsay Gibbs, Shireen Ahmed. See you next week, flamethrowers. And I'm so-